You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Psychedelia. Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Prohibition is self-defeating. It's a multiplier for the industry. It increases the price, but doesn't decrease demand. The drug war began with the process of colonisation. The current measures are based on fear. Good afternoon. This is In Psychedelia on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Thank you very much to Freedom of Species. Back next week from 1pm. Uh, if you want to uh, find out more from something, maybe you missed something in the program and you want to uh, hear it again or you want to share something with a friend, you can head to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to the Freedom of Species program page and from there you'll find their social media and you can subscribe to their podcast, which you can also do um, for In Psychedelia follow uh, the links and you'll find us as well and you can do all the same things. Uh, We're a program dedicated to talking uh, all things drugs, whether it's policy, science, culture uh, or all the little nitty gritty bits in between. Um, We also put some of our interviews and uh, segments like this one on our YouTube channel, um, which is uh, something that you might be watching right now or you might be listening uh, on 3CR. So you can uh, go and find us on YouTube. Just look for In Psychedelia and hit the subscribe button there. Um, and our podcast is on 3cr.org.au. I think that's everything. <laughs> My name's Nick. Um, and uh, on this afternoon's program, uh, well, first up, we'll get stuck into some uh, some news. Um, uh, sitting with me is uh, Drugs Rap uh, Drugs Rap editor uh, Jack Ravel. Jack uh, puts together the weekly newsletter, which covers drug issues across Australia, and you can subscribe at uh drugswrap.substack.com jack welcome hi nick how's it going yeah good uh another week in uh, isolation here in melbourne how's uh how's things in not isolation land well things in not isolation land are obviously a lot better and i think right now i'd be pretty upset if i was in melbourne um i think obviously the lockdown's been extended over there which is pretty rough um so definitely feel for everyone in in melbourne and and victoria um yeah i mean things here are sort of getting back to normal i mean there's been a few scares but we've had pretty low case numbers um so things are looking positive but yeah obviously just um pretty frustrating for everyone down in down in victoria it's time to get stuck into the news uh, from this week. Uh, again, drugswrap.substack.com is the uh, newsletter if you want to go and subscribe so you can follow along uh, with the stories that we're talking about this week. Uh, first one, Jack, uh, NT judge weighs up to po- deportation of Alice Springs man convicted of cannabis stealing. Uh, what's going on? This is in ABC. So- 63-year-old man. Um, he's been living in Australia for the past 40 years. Um, he was born in Holland. Uh, he left the country when he was six months old, and he's been convicted of possession and supply of cannabis in the Northern Territory. The judge up there has threatened to deport him back to Holland because he's not technically a citizen of Australia. Um, and, you know, it's just, a, it's just a kind of strange story because this guy has no connections to the country. He doesn't speak the language. He's got no relatives over there. It's looking like that probably won't actually happen, but the judge in this instance was sort of threatening that, um, you know, for, for, the, for the supply of, of cannabis um, and also, you know, separating him from his kids, sending him back over there. Mm. Um, so that's obviously a pretty um, strange outcome for, for such a crime. Yeah, I guess it just shows again that the um, prohibition of uh, cannabis uh, ends up causing more problems than cannabis itself for a lot of people. Uh, ABC News, social media has provided a new marketplace for drugs and police are struggling to keep up. So this is a write-up here about something that's been ongoing for quite a while. It's definitely tying into the dark net and think places like Silk Road, um, Dream Market, these online websites that are very good at sending very small amounts of drugs across um, the world and across Australia. And so this is really looking at the ways in which people are using those markets. But then 
combining that with social media sites like TikTok, Instagram, um, Snapchat and places like that, where they're then able to sell drugs very easily to, to other people. And because they're dealing in such small quantities, it's quite hard for police to keep up in that in that respect. Yeah, there's um, a, an example on the screen, but for those of you listening, um, you might have uh, experienced, if you're on Instagram, getting friend requests from accounts that just look like uh, just look like a convenience store for illicit substances. And I just can't, I don't understand it. I don't understand how they can get away with it, but I suppose uh, a scale, um, if you can just even create bots or something to do this sort of thing, then it becomes quite uh, overwhelming uh, to be able to control, which is <laughs> what a strange... Strange world. Um, through to the TGA now, this is the Therapeutic Goods Administration, our regulator of drugs, poisons, medicines and medical devices in this country uh, with a um, proposed amendment to the poison standard, Jack. Right. So this is a bit of a complicated one, but there's going to be a joint meeting of government bodies in November, um, which will advise on this proposed amendment to the poison standard. And the poison standard is the legislation that regulates in what schedule drugs are placed. Um, currently, MDMA and psilocybin are Schedule 9, which means it's very difficult to use them in medical research purposes. Um, there's going to be a meeting in November which will potentially look at rescheduling those two substances. I'd be surprised if that did go ahead, but the committee has had some um, submissions for for them to go and do that and i think they have to then take that into into um account but Mm -hmm. i would be surprised if that actually did change but it is upcoming Uh, My understanding is this is um, Mind Medicine Australia who are seeking to uh, uh, basically become the the regulators of psychotherapists, from what I understand, uh, regulators of psychedelic psychotherapists uh, in Australia. Um, And having a Schedule 9 substance makes it nearly impossible to do that. Uh, Schedule 8 means that um, the the walls are a little bit lower uh, in terms of access, but it's still... um, uh, you know, it's it's only, I guess, for uh, a very specific purpose then, and it's still highly controlled. But um, it'll be interesting to watch uh, what happens. The TGA are generally not very uh, uh, open to changing their mind. Um, uh, heading across to PonderingPot.com.au, uh, Australia's first medical cannabis marketplace proves uh, budding success. <laughs> Yeah, they love the language around that. Um, I think I tweeted last week about how almost every publication that wants to write about medical cannabis has to use the phrase greenlit, like something's been greenlit. Yeah. It's just very, you know, very easy to, I don't know, roll your eyes at that. Um, but this is a story about a new online sort of marketplace for pharmacists called CanView, which they essentially streamline the ordering process for pharmacists to fill these medical cannabis prescriptions because at the minute it's quite difficult. You have to order each prescription individually and it takes a lot of back and forth between the pharmacies and and the people supplying it. Um, This this online platform came together and they um, have managed to make that process a whole lot easier. Um, They've managed to process 4,000 orders in July alone and it's looking like that's going to be really, really useful to people who, who need to access that. Online ordering, it's the future. Even the big retailers are um, throwing a lot of uh, a lot of money into their uh, online and their click and collect. Uh, <laughs> for all the Victorians listening, um, it's been quite the experience uh, learning all that. I don't know, have you had um, weird click? Maybe I'll just, just ask you for a second, Jack. Have you had uh, situations up there where you can only click and collect from stores like Bunnings or um, Officeworks? Those are the two, two big ones that seem to... Uh, well, at the moment, they they were looking to impose things like that. When we were in the stage three lockdown, that was very much the case. You had to be pretty cautious about um, where you were going to get things, but it was never in the same way that it's being dealt with in Victoria right now. I mean, even we've had cases of workers in Bunnings who have had coronavirus um, tested positive for that, and you know nothing like that has happened. So, still very much, we're able to keep it you know physical rather than completely online. It's good to see that other businesses are, uh, especially in the medical cannabis area, are moving to uh, to the, the online approach. Crossing to psychologytoday.com, uh, publishing a piece, Psychedelic Therapy Raises $30 Million Needed for FDA Approval, and I have a feeling there's some uh, congratulations uh, in the air, um, but it's always congratulations for these guys. 
Yeah, so this is Maps. Obviously, they've been one of the absolute biggest players in the game for for many, many years. Um, they have finally raised the necessary amount that they need to complete phase three clinical trials of MDMA for um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. That means that they're going to be able to go ahead and probably get FDA approval, which will mean that that can then become you know widely distributed and, and and available to people who who need it and that's a huge step and it's something that they've been pushing for for decades um you know rick doblin who's the founder he you know has been in the game for for so long and it's it's pretty amazing and the thing is that's interesting about that is that a lot of it has actually come through crowd funding from big sort of angel investors, people like Tim Ferriss and very large um, wealthy organizations who are realizing that the potential medical benefit that these things have and they're putting that money in there. So it's it's a big, big um, yeah celebration and in, in for MAPS. Yeah, that's um, that's huge news, and I think that fits in with. Uh, I remember seeing a, a sort of uh, timeline uh, that they had a few years ago, where they were hoping that by twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, they would um, possibly have a, a regulated system with the FDA uh, approvals. So it looks like it might be keeping on track, although I suppose COVID might have uh, pushed some of that um, out a little bit. But congratulations, Maps! That's huge news, um, and I'm sure it'll raise plenty of new questions as well about um, how uh, psychedelic psychotherapy works in the uh, in the 21st century. Uh, in the times.co.uk, Sean Bailey, office tests could stop polite cocaine use. Ah, yes. So this is an interesting story. Sean Bailey is the Conservative uh, mayoral candidate uh, for the Mayor of London. There are some elections coming up soon, and he has essentially relaunched um, somewhat of a flagging campaign to be elected mayor of London and stop Sadiq Khan getting a second term. And he said that one of his flagship policies is going to be that every firm in the capital with more than 250 employees will have to or be expected to conduct regular drug tests. And then they want to actually publish the results of those drug tests showing which companies have the worst um, offenders for, for drug usage. And he believes that doing so will actually stop gang-related violence in the capital um, and this relates to kind of the next story, which I've which I've put up there. And there's a there's a sort of trend of people in in the UK associating middle class cocaine use with with drug gangs and stabbings of you know young black people in London. And obviously, no one is you know is thinking that that's something that we shouldn't be paying attention to. But that doesn't seem to be the way to go about it. So this interview um, that was done with Vice, it's with uh, Professor Alex Stevens, and he's the senior editor of the International Journal of Drug Policy. He goes through the sort of tropes of this argument and shows how really these claims are not based in evidence at all. And the, the link between middle class cocaine use and gang violence is very tenuous. A lot of the gang violence is coming from um, you know crack meth, heroin, those kind of things, like really serious um, addiction drugs. Um, and then just as a sort of follow-up to that, because obviously the guy who announced this is part of Boris Johnson's party, um, he was then asked, will he be drug testing his own cabinet as what the Tory mayoral candidate has said should be done? And, and the government came out and said, actually, there's no plans to do that, even though people in his cabinet have had historic um, drug use sort of issues. It's um, funny, I, I sort of want to chuckle a little bit at this one, but then there's a part of me that's um, remembering that um, all of this all of this is sort of um, a, a bit of a a playbook that I've seen from the um, from from the drug testing industry, and it's becoming quite a uh, quite a, um, a strong industry with a lot of policing links and a lot of uh, links in in um, in governments, at least here in Australia, and I'm sure it's very similar in the UK, um, where these um, organisations have sort of pivoted towards um, writing policies that they want implemented for you know healthy workplaces and things like that. But what it effectively means is that your workplace will now uh, have an eye into your weekend. Um, and things like that. Uh, so 
uh, and and just the whole, even the whole. Oh well, are we going to um, drug test the politicians? Is is just fantastic because now the question is not whether or not we should do it; it's who we should do it for, and it becomes this kind of vindictive thing where people aren't really thinking about whether or not we should. They've already decided that you know, oh, we're going to get you, and because. Drugs. The reality is, are throughout society, and I'm guessing that's what um, <laughs> that's what Alex Stevens was saying uh, in that uh, Vice World News report. Um, heading now to Canada. Canada's uh, prosecutors take historic step towards decriminalising drugs, and this is in uh, the Huffington Post.ca. So this has been a story that's been brewing for a while. Um, I think I reported or edited a few stories a few weeks ago about how there's a big move in Canada towards decriminalization. And quite quietly last Tuesday, public prosecutors in Canada updated their guidelines and they've said that they would not like their attorneys to focus on um on on convicting people for uh, sorry incarcerating people for for minor drug possession instead they would actually like to see them um, divert those people to treatment and um, you know mental health facilities and things like that so it's kind of a step towards decriminalization quite a small step but quite a significant step there I think um, it's good news for Canada there's a lot of good news coming out of Canada so um, good to keep an eye there um, and finally uh, to the green greenmarketreport.com uh, <laughs> cultivating the industry's financial news into one source oh the uh, I love it secretly um, mindmed plans MDMA LSD trial to study bad trip reduction um, so is this about um, what we were hearing from the TGA earlier no, this is something different. So MindMed um, in the US, they are looking to uh, work. They're working with a hospital in, in Germany, um, which is going to study a combination of MDMA and LSD in phase one clinical trials. So giving people both Candy of those flipping. drugs. <laughs> yeah, essentially. So I've written there, you know, it's a move straight out of the 90s rave scene playbook, you know, potentially the, the hippies had a point that if you combine <laughs> MDMA and LSD, you're going to have the, the positive um, mental outlook of, of MDMA as well as the potential therapeutic benefit of LSD. And so they're saying that this new treatment paradigm um, is probably going to have a synergistic effect and may be able to really um, break down a lot of barriers for people who are, who are needing those kind of therapies. That's very interesting. Very innovative research. Gosh, I wish we could see uh, innovative research happening here. Maybe one day. We'll see. Um, there's still, you know, time will tell. Uh, the newsletter is drugswrap.substack.com. You can uh, subscribe and get a weekly update on uh, drug news and policy from Australia and around the world. And that's all put together by Jack, who is here with me. Um, thank you very much, Jack. Cheers, Nick. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. Hey, all you mob. It's Dr. Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 8.55am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, 
and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning. Well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
sometimes it comes out, you know, just looking like a lot of nonsense put together. But sometimes when I get it right, I feel it, 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 it. from Smilk. Uh, it's Crooked, the Gumnut remix, and you can get that track uh, by heading along to zenonrecords.bandcamp.com. Uh, Zenon Records uh, have a number of uh, uh, um, artists around Australia and around the world. Um, some nice uh, tracks to get your feet bopping, which I think is what we need in Melbourne right now. 
Uh, this is in Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Uh, talking all things drugs and I'm going to play for you now um, part of a video. Um, again, a lot of videos that I'm playing and I'll, I'll reference those um, so that you can find them uh, later. But this one is from the Drugs Reporter YouTube account. Uh, drugs Reporter uh, uh, is a uh, organisation, I suppose, of uh, a small collection of individuals that are doing uh, reporting on drugs and uh, drug issues um, around the world, usually focused in um, Europe, but they've been doing a series called Taking Back What's Ours. And this series is looking at the history of drug user movements uh, in different countries. And episode six focuses on Australia and um, New Zealand. Uh, so I wanted to play um, a bit of this for you and you can go check out the uh, full video as well. Uh, just YouTube account, uh, look for Drug Reporter. Um, and uh, we've got in here uh, Jude Byrne from the Australian Injecting and Illicit Drug Users League, or AVIL, uh, Annie Madden and Charles Henderson uh, from the New South Wales Users and AIDS Association, or NUA, and Geoffrey Ward as well from the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, which is Karma. Uh, Jeff also um, presents a program uh, up on 2XX uh, Canberra's uh, community radio station called uh, News from the Drug War Front, which you can find, Google around for it, 2XX News, News from the Drug War Front. Uh, this is Drugs Reporter taking back what's ours. Episode 6, Australia and New Zealand. My name is Annie Madden. I do a bit of stuff for Impud in this region and internationally at times, just representational work. I'm also involved uh, because I live in Sydney in New South Wales with the New South Wales Users and AIDS Association or NUA. I used to be involved with the Australian Injecting and Illicit Drug Users League or better known as AVIL for 16 years until 2016. My name is Charles Henderson. Currently I'm working for the New South Wales uh, Users and AIDS Association, known as NUA, uh, in uh, New South Wales, Australia. But previously I've spent most of my career in New Zealand working uh, within the Needle Exchange Program. My name's Jude Byrne. I'm with the Australian Injecting Illicit Drug Users League and I've been with them for the last 30 years or more. My name is Jeff Ward. I was born in America, grown up in Melbourne, live in Canberra now. I work for a peer-based drug use organisation in Canberra called Karma, Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy. It's, uh, yeah, Canberra's peer-based drug use organisation and I'm the policy advocacy and peer support worker. I used drugs in many different ways uh, over the years, uh, amphetamines, uh, psychedelics and other psychostimulants and psychoactives as but I, I think I would say opiates are my main uh, drug of choice and uh, have a long injecting drug use career and I've also been on uh, methadone um, for over 20 years now. When I was 16 I read a book called Panic in Needle Park and this is back in 1975 so um, drug use wasn't you know highly um, infiltrated into the, into the mainstream community. So I had to go looking for it and it took me 18 months to find it because I really liked the, the way that people lived their lives, the, um, the, the tension, the, the excitement that they really seemed to be living and it just something about it attracted me. So I went looking for it and then when I found it, I, um, it was just worked beautifully. I really liked it. It made me feel the way I want to feel if I have to get through this world. So, and once you found that, it's hard not to pursue it. And I don't believe it's anybody else's business what my body needs to live and function and work well. As a teenager, a typical Australian male started out with alcohol, which I suppose is the rite of passage for most uh, people in Australia. But as soon as I found hash and started eating hash and having it with, um, you know, edibles, uh, that was the end of my interest in alcohol. Uh, from there, when I moved out of home, started smoking cannabis, uh, using a bit of speed, and then after a car accident, I went through a car windscreen and had bits of glass in my face, and uh, I, a friend of mine introduced me to heroin, and once I had discovered the joys of heroin, that was it. I was off to the races, and um, yeah, used for uh, probably 15 years, 
And at that stage, I think we were very fortunate in Australia that we were located where we had access to the Golden Triangle, which was high quality um, white powder, alkaline powder, and a variety of uh, rocks, pink, beige, etc. So there was a lot of variety of very high quality heroin. And it was sort of affordable and it was much more of a social um, situation. I, I mean, I found it uh, a very mind expanding, met lots of interesting people. Um, yeah, it just opened my, uh, my eyes to a whole different world. And I'd worked two jobs to pay for my heroin use um, and I just couldn't um, make the next step to turn to crime to continue. So I actually then went on methadone. I've been on methadone in both Victoria and the Australian Capital Territory for probably 30 years now, and I would give that um, significant credit for still being here. I started using very early, uh, and I was very perturbed to see um, in my attempts to get a needle and syringe that there was a police car, you know, just 50 yards away from the entrance of where I was going to to get a needle and syringe. And I just thought, you know, that was a, like kind of weird, even though there was a lot of talk around trying to make sure that people would get a new needle and syringe. So I, I kind of sort of very much wondered about why um, there would be such a sort of uh, dichotomy. I guess from that, point of, from that point on, I always felt, well, I could represent drug users because I am part of that community. The history of the drug users' rights movement in Australia is a, a long and rich one, actually. So that's a nice thing to be able to say. We've uh, probably one of the few countries that have had a funded and ongoing drug users' movement and presence in Australia for over 30 years now. So the organisations generally sort of grew up out of that grassroots kind of level, very much grassroots activism in the kind of mid to late 80s, largely in response to HIV AIDS when that uh, first came onto our agendas. Drug users um, really early on understood that there was a virus going around that was had something to do with some needles and they were setting up underground needle exchanges. They were making sure they told each other about sharing. Fortunately, at that stage, the... Hawke Labor government had a very um, progressively minded health minister in Dr Neil Blewett who took the, I think, enlightened view of the best response to uh, dealing with the, the crisis was to talk to affected communities, which was um, gay men, sex workers and intravenous drug users, and involve them in crafting the public education messages and involving those communities in how to best respond to HIV. And of course, with injecting drug users, access to clean injecting equipment was a massive issue because there wasn't a needle and syringe program. You can put all the funding you like in, but you know you need to have the right people in the right place who have reach into communities and who have credibility um, and are relatable for those communities for that to really work. And we were there on the ground, you know, demanding peer-based services and peer-based needle and syringe programs because we knew that that is what was going to work the best with our community uh, because they're highly marginalised, highly stigmatised and uh, would be reluctant to come forward. I got hepatitis B three times before I worked out that sharing injecting equipment was most likely the cause of me continually getting sick and fortunately I found a surgical supply um, shop that sold glass syringes with um, metal picks that were known as lure lock and I never let anyone use my glass fit and I would boil it for 10 or 11 minutes after using and never got hep B again and um, fortunately avoided HIV and hep C as well. But really the beginning uh, of uh, the response and the formation of AVIL as the peak drug use organisation was all in response to HIV AIDS. It was not about any compassion for drug users or concern for their lives or keeping them alive. It was purely how do we stop HIV getting into the mainstream community? And it was successful. We've never had an openly drug using uh, uh, apparatus or organisation in New Zealand, but the Needle Exchange Program has been a de facto organisation uh, or apparatus for drug user rights. In New Zealand, 1980s, early 1980s, there was the coming together of drug users to 
think about ways where they will be able to uh, look after themselves and uh, drug user rights, but it was very much aligned towards uh, injecting drug use uh, and uh, the HIV uh, epidemic. New Zealand might be one of the first countries in the world to have a national needle exchange program. And what I mean by that is needle exchange is offered and uh, sterile needles and syringes offered right across the country. And getting that done, there were some early activists that worked very hard. And I think uh, in particular of a HIV uh, gay uh, drug user, he was actually uh, sending uh, needles and syringes to the Minister of Health. He managed to get the Minister of Health to very much uh, be uh, much more aware of the issues around HIV. As a national manager of that needle exchange program, um, I was able to work uh, very hard to get some legislative change around uh, the possession of needles and syringes. Even though there wasn't a needle exchange program, it was still illegal to carry uh, needles and syringes. I was able to build up a body of evidence around getting the uh, government to understand that they needed to change that law and we were successful. We've got one of the lowest HIV uh, rates in the world amongst people who inject drugs. So that's an outstanding success. And that's a success because we introduced needle exchange program early. Eventually we established a national organisation in Avel and that sort of once again grew out of the grassroots movement and the kind of state and territory or provincial type organisations eventually established a national organisation to create a voice at that federal level as well. So it's a very rich history. It is uh, a history that involves government funding of organisations and therefore uh, both professional, paid and volunteer activists uh, and workers. So uh, lots of programs and services um, as well as activism and um, campaigns. We uh, developed the first peer naloxone program ever in Australia and it sort of had a sort of serendipitous um, history. I went to the 2010 International Harm Reduction Conference in Liverpool in the UK and I went to a presentation by a doctor from uh, the United States, Dr. Sars Maxwell, who spoke about street um, training of heroin users in how to recognise an opiate overdose and respond with naloxone. At the end of the presentation I actually went to say, you know, that's really inspiring stuff, um, I'm, I'm so impressed with what you're doing. And she said, well, you know, what are you doing in Australia? And I said, well, really nothing. You have to call an ambulance or get to emergency department of a hospital. And she sort of almost maybe put my hand on my heart and promised to, to do whatever I could when I got back to Canberra to try and get a, a peer project up and running. And the proposal that I wrote was very basic um, to have a trial of naloxone in Canberra Got, got, got a tick and Karma was funded to do a trial of naloxone with 200 current heroin users in Canberra and it evaluated so well that we got actually new funding and we have a, a permanent full-time worker, Dave, who does um, naloxone training of um, users, uh, family and friends and also workers and we've saved, you know, you can't put the exact number, but dozens if not hundreds of lives through that project. So I'm very proud of that. When the HIV virus had been sort of um, epidemic had been sort of, you know, put to bed and our numbers were staying under, you know, 2%. Um, but hep C, which had been tracking along all the time behind it, drug users had been, had been getting hep C forever. We hung around for those years in between HIV and hep C and tried to lobby really hard to get the government to see that they couldn't do hep C without us either. I think we've made a huge difference into the number of drug users who have hep C, who are going to treatment. And I think having us at the table has made them think and move a little further than they would have if we hadn't been at the table. And it's hard being at that table because quite often you're the only drug user in a table of 20 or 30 bureaucrats, researchers, senior politicians. And it can be, you know, it can be really difficult to get your point across. And sometimes I just say that, you know, younger people, sometimes you don't have to say anything, you just have to be there because by being there, they're thinking about you and they're not going as hard as they would have. One of the big impacts that my activism has had on me was when I stood up in the 1999 New South Wales Drug Summit 
here in Sydney. This was held in Parliament House in Sydney. Uh, the room was filled with politicians, of course, because we're in Parliament House, and invited guests from uh, the broader community and the sector. And I stood up forgetting, of strangely and stupidly, I guess, that there was media in Parliament House. Um, it didn't really occur to me for some reason, but I stood up uh, and declared that I was an injecting drug user on the floor of the parliament. And it caused quite a stir, I have to say. Um, but I did that because the conversations that were going on at the drug summit were very stigmatizing towards drug users. I was very concerned about what they were talking about and the types of initiatives that they were looking at either bringing in or ending. So for example, there were discussions about ending methadone programs because they just encourage drug use and that sort of thing. So I was really worried about that. I was working for Newer at the time and I decided that I was going to stand up and make an intervention. As I say, it had a huge impact. Media were there in Parliament House and uh, I ended up being rushed into a media conference straight after making the intervention, which ended up being on the national news that night, on television, on radio, in newspapers. Um, I was you know, personally attacked quite uh, profoundly by some of the right-wing radio shock jocks and, and right-wing commentators in the newspaper. Um, but most importantly, um, it meant that my family saw all of this um, for them in quite a shocking way, I guess, and came out of the blue. So um, it meant that I was estranged from my family for probably 10 years after that. Um, they found it difficult to understand what my life was about and um, this aspect of me, I guess. And um, I also know when I look back on it now that, you know, they were feeling stigmatized and shamed as well. As I've got older, I've reflected on just, you know, that, that stuff's really hard, I think. And often, while we bear the brunt, of course, of the stigma and discrimination that drug users face, families, our families and friends, I think, also bear some of that stigma. Uh, stigma's really sticky, you know? I'm happy to say we did reconcile those things over time. And in fact, our relationship is much better and far more honest. In fact, um, one of the, the outcomes from the 1999 New South Wales Drug Summit was that uh, the government decided to establish Australia's first medically supervised injecting room. And it is on the record that it was the activism of myself and other drug user activists at the time uh, coming out publicly and passionately on that issue that actually was uh, quite a turning point in that decision. And equally, the more recent decision on the Melbourne uh, medically supervised injecting facility, the drug user activists in Australia and Victoria were very, very much front and centre on getting that decision through as well. Once you're added as a drug user in the public service, your career's going nowhere. It cost me another job in the community sector when I got outed as a heroin user. You know, I, I did suffer some personal um, impact from the fact that my choice of drug happened to be something that was deemed illicit and therefore frowned upon by employers and many other just general people who dumped me as a friend when they found out that I was a, a heroin user. People are frightened of us. That's um, the, thing that, the thing that I think bothers me the most is when you ask, they, because, because we're othered so successfully, they think they don't even know what we do and who we are. I mean, I think they probably think we go to the toilet standing on our heads and we only eat vegetables that have been, you know, um, mixed up with green herbs. Because when they write research papers about us and when they're talking about how we'd respond to something, it seems to be that it wouldn't be the response of 
the usual human being. It'll have to be the response of this group of people and they're not the same. And then they get to know one of you and they think that you're the exception and it doesn't change their mind about the other ones. People have these crazy ideas about what drug users look like and we look like everybody. You know, there's nothing that we look like. But there's more of us in the workforce and there's more of us who are living next to you than you'll ever see in the streets around your city, homeless and um, struggling. There's many, many more of us. But, you know, we have to pass because the outcomes are too difficult. If I hadn't have got into the movement, I don't think I would have shrugged off the internal stigma and the shame and all the other things that, you know, I'd been sort of secretly, you know, harbouring for years because you can't help but um, be affected by the way people perceive you and, you know, the actions that people do when they're around you once they know you're a drug user. It's, it's made me um, a fighter and I don't know that I would have been a fighter if I hadn't come across this issue. That relentless propaganda, drugs are bad, junkies are evil, you know, it permeates the, the consciousness of, of the society, makes it very, very difficult. The mainstream media, especially News Corporation and the Murdoch Empire, never print positive stories about drug users or drug use in general. It's always negative stuff, you know, headlines, uh, you know, people robbing little old ladies or, you know, just calamitous um, headlines. That it, and often it's misinformation. Being a drug user put put a, put myself and exposed me to some repercussions that um, were pretty fundamental and, and pretty life-changing uh, and uh, that's related to criminalization but in terms of my personal life um, it was nothing but wonderful um, I think it, it extended my um, uh, my vision it extended my thinking it uh, uh, being a drug user exposed me to communities that I wouldn't have been exposed to if I hadn't used drugs. While I'm a drug user, I'm also many other things in my life. And, you know, I've also uh, run organisations and I'm currently a PhD student and, you know, I've been to university and I've been a student activist and I've, you know, done lots of things in my life. And um, so, you know, it's one part of my life, but what I have found is that because of the way that drugs are perceived and portrayed in society, often it becomes all you are uh, once you're public about that. And I have been the victim of some quite, um, you know, really harsh uh, media coverage um, over the years. There was one uh, double page spread that was dedicated to me uh, where I had dared publicly to stand up and declare myself an injecting drug user and to say not, not only that, but that I was okay, thanks very much, and that I also was a productive member of the community and that I had uh, good relationships with friends and family and was, you know, a functioning person in the community. And because I dared to say all of those things and to contradict the stereotypes, my, uh, you know, my punishment was a double page spread of me in a major metropolitan uh, newspaper uh, with a caricature of me looking very haggard and tired with a fit hanging out of my arm, looking in the mirror with the headline, you're kidding yourself, Annie. Um, so, I don't know, you know, uh, that was hard to see those things. But interestingly, there were also articles from other perspectives that were really supportive and really encouraging. And one of the things I remember most from that time is that I got dozens and dozens, literally, of letters and emails from other drug users who said to me, thank you so much for doing this. I could tell the heartfelt um, gratitude from some of the people writing to me to just say I don't feel so alone in the world now and and thank you for doing that so the rewards are really rich um, but the the criticisms and the the spotlights can be harsh too you know we've had successes but it's almost to me like putting band-aids on a severed artery it's not actually addressing the fundamental cause of the harms which are due to prohibition and the war on people who use drugs. You know, like methadone program, buprenorphine, great. I mean, 
personally, it's been wonderful for me, but I prefer pharmaceutical grade heroin if I could. Harm reduction, which gets, I think, less than 2% of the overall funding expenditure. Most of it goes to police, customs, courts, you know, jails, etc. Very little funding comes from uh, government to actually address the harms of prohibition. They like prohibition. They support prohibition. It's just say no. It's war on drugs. It's, you know, and despite the failure, you know, um, wasn't the famous definition of insanity is to keep repeating the same thing, expecting a different result? Well, that's what we're doing. When you read the litany of, of horrors and catastrophes and human rights abuses and criminal justice um, corruption that falls out of prohibition, you have to do something about it or you're not being a good member of your, your community. Something to me which is um, your personal choice to put a substance into your body and you're not hurting anyone else, you're not allowed to do that. You know, the state or the government has a list which is, to me, very arbitrary. I mean, the single convention on narcotic drugs, the UN Convention, goes back to 1961. Um, it's not based on any real evidence. To me, it's a political and um, it's a construct that serves a couple of purposes. I think it makes a hell of a lot of money that is factored into the global economic order. You know, you've got banks like HSBC convicted of laundering cartel cocaine profits. Did anyone go to jail? No. Um, it's a cover for CIA and other spy agencies to uh, meddle in the affairs of other countries. And, and they can say, oh, we're not uh, engineering a coup in, um, you know, a leftist uh, South American government. We're fighting the war on drugs. So it provides that sort of cover. So um, I think there's a lot of dishonesty in what actually is going on. You know, this is not a positive um, global social policy. In fact, I would say it is the single most catastrophic global public policy fiasco disaster that's cost more lives, um, shortened lives, wreaked more harm, extrajudicial killings, beheadings, discrimination, stigma, jailing. And one of the saddest things is the internalising of the, of the oppression that a lot of drug users feel that they're not worthy of being given good service or good health care or being not discriminated against because they read so often about how filthy they are as junkies and low lives and that they end up taking that on uh, internally. And I find that really, really sad. For me, one of the most important goals of the drug users movement should be the reform of the current drug control regime from the international level through to sort of national or domestic levels and local levels, top to bottom, across the board. I think it is, is a, a rotten, sick and very uh, punitive and harmful approach to addressing the issue of drug use in society. I would like to see Australia um, withdraw from the three United Nations conventions and, um, and act on behalf of Australian citizens on the merits of, of the issue. I see no benefit to Australia. We're wasting millions, if not billions of dollars enforcing these UN conventions. Um, why? Why are we doing that to our own citizens? We don't have situations like in the Philippines where people are extrajudicially murdered in the street uh, or beheaded like uh, in Saudi Arabia. Or but You've been hearing from the YouTube channel Drugs Reporter Special, Taking Back What's Ours, Episode 6, Australia and New Zealand, with the voice there of Charles Henderson. You can watch the rest on YouTube. 3CR, here to stay. This is N Psychedelia on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, 3cr.org.au, and you might be also watching along on YouTube. You can go check out our YouTube channel. Just look for N Psychedelia or easiest way, 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Follow the links to our program page. You'll be able to find everything you need to about our program there. Uh, just about it for this week, but just wanted to let you know that tomorrow is International Overdose Awareness Day. Um, and uh, there is an event that Yarra Drug Health Forum are hosting, an online event. Uh, you can access it by going to the Yarra Drug Health Forum website, ydhf.org.au, and it'll be streamed on their YouTube at 7.30pm on Monday evening. Uh, so please tune into that. Uh, there's a number of people uh, like uh, Margaret Hamilton, um, who uh, was the principal uh, investigator um, for the... Um, 
inquiry into the um, medically supervised injecting room. Uh, there's San Biondo from VADA, the Victorian Alcohol and Drugs Association. A um, number of families will also be contributing, um, harm reduction Victoria. Um, and it's, it's really a day about um, re- remembering all of those uh, who have been lost in the entirely preventable, um, you know, way of overdose. Uh, the event is compassion, not judge, not judgment. Ydhf.org.au. Uh, Queering the air is up next on 3CR. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. This is in psychedelia. psychedelia. For more information, visit Psychedelia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. In psychedelia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, Direct Line provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. And Psychedelia will be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more. You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. Created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.